Good morning. It is 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. We are so glad that you are here. For those of you who are here in the room, and for those of you who are watching online or on replay, we're glad that you have tuned in uh, as well. Today we are finishing off a series called Pilgrimage. This is part four uh, of the series. It's been a series uh, that we talked about because uh, people are traveling this summer, and anytime we travel, it opens us up to new horizons, new learnings, new way of doing things, of doing life, and different ecosystems and environments that support a way of life that is so different from us. And so we come into it thinking we know everything about how things work, and then we see things operating in different ways, and we go, oh, that's interesting. That's a a good way of doing those things. And we learn from those who have gone before, either via Yelp or Airbnb or reviews or whatever um, in terms of travel. And we said from a religious standpoint, there have been kind of these religious pilgrimages through Christian tradition of people going to very spiritual places, having spiritual experiences and writing about it and telling people about it, whether it's a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime sort of trip uh, to some great cathedral or temple or the Vatican or a synagogue or a tomb or a garden or a baseball stadium, some sort of a spiritual experience uh, that has, has been kind of shaping for what we, what we think and what we value. And uh, some of them uh, have lived to write about it, and, and specifically in the Christian tradition, here's uh, like a lot of pilgrimages to the Holy Land or trips uh, to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem used to be kind of the center of the maps, center of the world at that time. Um, they would offer some advice. Here's what you should pack. Here's what you should expect. Here's some obstacles you're going to face and what you can expect to achieve and uh, obtain as a result of kind of going on this trip. And, and, you know, this isn't, we're not really, I'm not really a, 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 the type of person who's like, you have to go to the Holy Land before you, you know, leave. This isn't a series on making sure you do a spiritual pilgrimage in your life. I'm just saying that you're probably going to travel, and perhaps there's some advice from the way that they wrote about things and talked about things that would be helpful for us, practical uh, application as we go and we do our trips. It's almost June and July, and, and school's almost out, and, and whether you're doing Disney or Florida or, or, or something like that, there's, there's practical learnings that we could take from that and say, how do we, how do we shape? And so... Um, uh, we said very early on in the series, uh, w- when I'm reminded to pack lightly, a lot of times uh, a, a pilgrimage, a pilgrim who had gone before would say, remember to pack lightly, right? Um, we, we say that that works on a practical level, both because we don't want to be overweight on the bag, so we get in the flight and the plane, and we've got to get charged more. But more realistically, it just is a reminder every time we pack of how little stuff we actually need to kind of survive, and what if we even could kind of tame that back even more? What if, what if instead of packing our cars or our suitcases all the way to the brim, we intentionally left room and take what the space provides for us? In fact, I was sitting in our living room with our couch. My wife and I were talking about an upcoming trip, and um, we, she said something like along those lines with that grin that she like knows that what she's talking about. She goes, um, you know, what if, what if this time on this trip we take only what the space offers us? And I, I looked at her and I go, oh, you were listening. You were listening on a, on a Sunday. That's so nice. She goes, Brent, I wrote that. You, you, you took that from me. I said that and you wrote it down and then you told it in front of everybody as if you came up with that. And even in that talk, I, I mentioned it was hers. And so I, how quickly I forget uh, in that way. Uh, in week two, we said, listen warily to the advice of others, because anytime you've ever said, oh, I'm going to this place and this place, if anybody's been there or anywhere close to there, they'll always have advice for you. Oh, you have to stop here. Oh, you have to stop here. You have to eat here. You got to shop here. You got to buy this. You got to experience this. You got to taste this, whatever. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. We said, just listen warily to them. But also translate that over into ourselves. We tell ourselves all kinds of things all, all the time as we travel. I deserve this. I need this. I whatever. I have the right to be offended. There's different things that we are constantly in communication with, uh, with ourselves. We should, we would be like, it would be good for us to kind of listen warily to ourselves because of the deception that oftentimes we take place. And then last week, my buddy Seth was here and like, who even knows what he talked about, right? Because I was like on my phone the whole time. So, but I did talk to my wife 
And she said, I'm just kidding, Seth, if you're watching. Um, she said that he talked a lot about what it means to be here, to find yourself here. You go into a map in the mall, and you see this broad, sprawling map, and you're going, look, you always look for that sticker that says you are here, because that's the orientation. That's the starting point. You got to know where you're at, where, where you're going to go from, and, and what does it look like to be here. So anyways, if you missed any of those, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks, or if you have the app or you're watching this from the app, then you can just scroll out, not right now, but like later on, and uh, follow along in that series. So I had an idea for the end of this series. I knew it was going to be four parts. Uh, I knew it was going to be on pilgrimages, and I had read something recently that kind of had got my brain sparked in that direction. And so I thought what I would do in week four is I, I don't really like sit down and like outline the whole series necessarily. Um, not always anyways. I'll do p- bits and pieces, and I know I want to talk about this. And anyways, I, I thought for this conclusion piece that this would be the easiest one of the four to write and talk about because I thought I would do like, oh, man, you know, life is like a pilgrimage, guys you know, enjoy the ride, which sounds like a car commercial, not really like a church takeaway. But, but like, I could tie that in. I could find some verses uh, or, or, or text or some, you know, I could pluck this from here and this from here and this from here and whatever and put together something where it's like, hey, man, like, take full advantage of the opportunities that you have to live or whatever. And here's what would happen. Like, you'd sit, you'd take notes. I'd throw in some stories about my kids. You'd laugh. We'd meet in the lobby. You'd say that was really meaningful. And then we'd go on with our lives. And that would work, except that sometimes there are things that are thrown, like wrenches thrown in, or uh, divinely ordained, or perhaps just me, like things where I'll come across and be challenged. Now I can't really go that direction. So I was reading in preparation for this series and came across uh, a text that had the word pilgrimage in it, and immediately, kind of like when you're like shopping for a red car, and all of a sudden you see all the red cars, red Mazdas everywhere. Um, I, as soon as I knew I was going to be talking about pilgrimages, I saw this, and then I read it, and I'm like, I can't go there now in week four. Here's, here's what Fleming Rutledge had to say uh, in this thing. The, the Christian life of obedience is not a pilgrimage toward a goal, as is commonly supposed. It is a witness or signpost to that end goal that has already been achieved in Christ. The Christian life of obedience is not a pilgrimage towards a goal as commonly supposed. See, and that was the thing. I was going to say this is a life's like a pilgrimage. And eh, she's like, nah, not really. It's a witness or a signpost to that end goal that has already been achieved in Christ. So as a result of this, I had to shift gears and try to think because for the most part, most of our pilgrimages or our trips are defined by the successful arrival at our desired destination. If I find out, if I found out through like the next course of events, uh, next course of weeks or whatever, that you're planning a trip to Disneyland and you're going to drive there with your family this summer at some point, sometime in December or August, whenever you came back to church and we were fully open and we're like packed to the rafters again or whatever, um, and you walked in and I would say, oh, 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 how was your trip? How was your, how was your pilgrimage to Disneyland? And you responded by saying, we made it as far as Biggs, right? I would say, oh, that sucks, what happened, right? That's not a successful pilgrimage, I don't think, maybe you do, but to Disneyland, because we, we surmise it on this idea of you got to the place that you were desiring to go, um, and if you didn't get there, then it didn't work. And, and so it, this idea of uh, the uh, life of a, cr- a Christian as a, as a pilgrimage towards some end goal, and if you, if you don't get there, it, it's whatever. And, and we find ourselves, the ridiculous nature of saying, it would be so weird for us to say something along the lines of, uh, I just, just wanted you guys to know, I arrived at being Christian. I'm now, I, I made it. I, I, I achieved my successful destination. I uh, read enough chapters in the Bible, or, or I, I listened to enough talks and messages or podcasts or whatever, and then boom, one day I just found myself there. Like, we don't talk like that reasonably, and yet, and we wouldn't because that doesn't make sense, but in a less facetious way, 
Perhaps you grew up in a church environment where life was treated as a pilgrimage towards an end goal of one day you're going to stand before your maker and are you going to be able to stand there and say, I, I did all the right things, uh, you know, um, or this eternal judgment thing, or I, I got there and, and, and the, the, the primary goal was to, to make it and to hope that I'd done enough. That life is a pilgrimage, pilgrimage uh, uh, accumulate all of the like, good enough things that you've done, and then maybe at the end you'll have enough to kind of make it through to the next stage or whatever. And, and you won't hear me talk about life in that way because I don't think that that's kind of how, uh, how it works. And I don't think that spiritual, be- I think that what happens in those moments is that any sort of spiritual obedience or I'm going to do things in this way is to achieve and accumulate a resume that's good enough for God to kind of accept me or something like that just doesn't seem to jibe with what I read about in Scripture. Um, Sticking with our theme from the first week with this idea of these spiritual mystics, the self-identified, which I know is like a weird term and, and, um, you know, you don't want to, if somebody accused you of being a spiritual mystic because you go to church, you'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm just a regular dude or whatever. It's not a great term for us, but that's what they would define themselves at. And when they would write about their pilgrimages to whatever Holy Land destination they were going to go to, they would say, I didn't become a spiritual mystic once I pilgrimaged to Jerusalem. Once I got there, it's not like I got a passport or stamped on my passport, and now I'm a world traveler. I pilgrimaged to Jerusalem because I'm a spiritual mystic. The reason I went there is because I find myself to be a spiritual mystic. In the same way, uh, I would say and I don't discipline my body or my will to obey my moral obligations to the vine in order to achieve a certain level of righteousness. Or the, the appropriate response of a Christian would be like, I don't do things, I don't live in, in, religiously or have some sort of moral convictions about a certain degree in order to achieve a certain level of righteousness. I live this disciplined lifestyle, subject my will and my emotions to something beyond myself and beyond my immediate needs precisely because of my spiritual orientation. And I think I'm giving away the end of the message. That's the point that I want to get to. I think there's a text that kind of wrestles with this, and we're going we're gonna to come into this way. But it's, it's basically this idea that I think Paul develops in so much of his writings about becoming who you already are. Why should you, at, on, on, a, on a pilgrimage through life, what is a part of the pilgrimage? It's not achieving enough on the resume to someday make it. It's to pilgrimage to become what I already am, what I already found myself to be in Christ. And this idea is not original with me. As I mentioned, I think Paul wrote about it in a ton of his different letters. And in so many of his letters, he would write to these churches as he would go and he would plant them, he would leave, and then offer advice along the way. And a lot of times he would write in this, what's called the indicative imperative style of writing, where indicative, I'm going to tell you about who you are, and then I'm going to tell you how to like, live this out in light of who you are. So Ephesians, there's six chapters, three chapters are indicative, here's who you are in Christ, and then chapters four through six are now go live it out in this different way. He's always kind of affirming the indicative before he kind of tells us what to do, and he, he's going to do this again in a major way in a text that we're going to look at. Today, in the book of Romans, he writes a letter to a church in Rome. The background on Romans is a church he hasn't visited at this point. Um, Rome is the capital of the world at, the, you know, at this stage. Uh, it's the world superpower, and Christianity has spread even into that. It's going to grow so fast that eventually there's going to be a massive fire, and Nero's going to blame the Christians within the city of setting the city on fire, even though it was most likely him or something along his way. But Anyways, it's, it's a growing thing, but he's never been there, and he's traveling with, all, like, 
He's trying, he, he has this authority with all the places that he's been to because they know him and they know that he's good. And he hasn't been here, but he wants to go here because he wants to have a foot in the power seat of, of Rome because so, many, you know, so much influence is within Rome. And, and, and you know, of course he wants to be a part of, of that. And so he, he, writes it, he writes Romans in a different format, which makes it almost really, really difficult to read if you've ever read it. Um, more so than almost any of his other letters. My kids right now are doing, um, they're getting older, and so they're doing high, higher level homework. And if you, you're a parent, you know, like, there's a, certain, there's a certain age, and I don't know what it is, but the, 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 when they bring homework home, you're like, let me just, let's just do it together. And then there's a certain age where you're like, uh, I don't remember this at all. What are you learning? How is this possible? You know, and, and we're getting close to that. Uh, but in something that they are being encouraged to do now that I was not encouraged to do growing up, um, is this idea of showing my work. It's always in this, like, bold letter, show your work, show your work, show your work, because the teacher doesn't want just the right answer. They want to realize how the kid got to this answer so that if the answer's wrong, we can show you where in the process you misstepped, right? And so it's always show your work, show your work. And I, I'm the type of person, it's like, you know, I know what the answer is. This is the answer. Why do I need to tell you what it is? I just, anyways, this book that Paul writes is more show your work, than any other one that he writes. And there's, a, there's, there's kind of ideas on why he did this. Perhaps it is out of ego. He, comes, he can come across as a little bit egotistical. He can come across as um, uh, somebody who's trying to be a little bit self-righteous. He comes across as somebody who's perhaps trying to earn authority that he doesn't have, or, or he's trying to come across as an intellectual or, or, or whatever. But it's, it's a very, very difficult thing. Uh, but today, what, here's what I want to do. I want to walk through uh, one specific section of a chapter that's kind of a famous chapter for the topic that's going to be involved in, and I'm going to show my work with you as we wrestle with the text. And you might think, well, it might be, maybe it's ego, Brent just wants to prove how much he knows more than I do, or perhaps it's like this intellectual thing, or perhaps I just want to be a trusted authority for you in terms of interpreting scripture. We'll see. But you get to decide that for yourself. But we're going to jump into Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to break down the verses quite a bit on the screen. If you're the type of person that would rather have them all in front of you, or you just don't trust my copy-paste ability, um, then you can also go to the notes section on the app or the uh, website or eastlaketricity.com slash notes and get the whole text there. But Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, this is the NIV version. Here's what he says, and he's, he's having an argument with himself. He's showing his work. He's talking with an imaginary person who's having this dialogue, and, and he's, he's, again, wrestling with the text to show them, you can trust me with, like, theological thoughts in this. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He's just got done talking about um, God in his redemptive powers matches whatever sin that we have with the grace and his, his greatness of his grace over, can overcome any depths of sin or any amount of sin or whatever. And, and it, that's, that's, this communicates almost most convincingly, uh, most convincingly uh, in, in way of our response to our wayward living. This is his clarity of his love and his grace. And so he says, well, wouldn't it make sense then? There's an, there can be an argument to be made. If God's grace is most evident in redemption with high levels of sin, then maybe I get to do whatever I want because that just means all that means is more grace. So in a sense and in a way, me doing whatever I want to do 
is giving God a chance to be just glorified incredibly, to continue to chase after me and continue to love me in this way. I'm doing him a favor for me living the way that I want to live. And Paul is saying that is absolutely not how it works. By no means are we supposed to do this. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He is going to use this word death and life uh, in relation to our will and our obedience and our, our way of, of what kind of a spiritual power or regime we find ourselves under. He's trying to say there's been this regime change. In the same way that when you die, there are certain claims upon you that are dropped because they're no longer relevant. If you owed a massive amount of money to you know, City Cards or MasterCard or something like that, and then you die, I know that there's some degree that they could go after your family, but for the most part, you just say, listen, I know my dad owed you a lot of money, but here's the death certificate he passed away a year ago, please stop calling me. There is no more claim upon him because of his death. In the same way that if you have this life sentence and you die, right, there's like, or, or um, if you're about to be, you know, you know uh, criminally prosecuted or whatever, and then there's a death, it's not like they're like, well, he still needs to serve 14 years. That'd be a ridiculous notion in court. We're going to, Your Honor, we're going to move to dismiss the case. This person has died and it's no longer relevant, right? And justice cannot, there is no justice that can be done. He's, he's not alive anymore. There's no more claim here. In that same way, he's trying to say, and we need to begin to perceive ourselves as death, as dead to this idea of the tyranny of sin and moving into this new way of life, that there is a new reality for us. If you are a Christ follower, if you believe that what Christ has done for you is in this way, we no longer have to find ourselves subject to the power and the oppression and the tyranny of sin in this way. Occupational Germany, this is the image that I had in my mind. As you have these surrounding places in, in Germany uh, that are being occupied by, by the, the Axis forces, and then the Allies come through, and they, they march in, and, and they find out that the, the Axis is kind of removed, and the Allies are there, but there's like this, there, there's a, a regime change, and yet it, there's, for these people, they're processing an old way of life. You know, we've, we've lived for several years now under the oppression of these Axis forces or Nazi forces, and now you're, I know the allies are here, but like for sure the new reality took a while for it to set in for them, that this is now a new way of life. Something has changed, but it doesn't quite work itself out immediately. That's going to be a process. And Paul knows this, and he's saying this is kind of life too, that when you cross this line, we find ourselves now dead to the, to the we have to do it this way, and alive to Christ but there's this, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a period of time where we're trying, we're still trying to make sense of this new reality. It takes a while for things to be fully realized in this new way. So that is why he uses this death to life uh, language. Verse three: Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? He's going to use this baptism analogy, and you've seen these on Sunday mornings. We bring a tank. It's usually it used to be a horse trough. We've upgraded a little bit. Um, and now people will get in front of family and friends in their church, and they go down into the waters, symbolizing you know, uh, this idea of identification with Christ and his death and rising to new life in him. And for him, it's not necessarily about baptism as much as this conversion. I'm making this public statement. I want to join into this new thing. I'm now in Christ. I identify with him in his death. I, I give of myself, and I, I, and I hope to live with him in the future. And so he, he goes into this kind of dialogue, which is going to be a little bit sticky, but I promise, stick with me, and we'll get there. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead on Easter through the glory of the Father, we may live in this new life with him. Four, verse five. For if we have been united with him in death like this, or like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with it. We should no longer be slaves to sin. He's going to talk about this redemption. You're no longer slave to sin. You've died to that. You're alive with Christ because anybody who has died has been set free from sin. Now, what he's saying is we should no longer, we should see ourselves differently. We are not under the slavery that, that is so often times associated with this sinful life. Or we find ourselves trapped by this. We, we, we make a bad decision, and one bad decision leads to another and leads to another. And eventually it's so deep, the web is so deep that we just, we can't even see what's right. We can't keep our head above water. We're just trying to kind of keep pace, and we feel like, I'm, I'm, I, like I don't even want to do this. I want to do better, but I just can't even get myself to, to be there. Like, I'm so broken, and I... And I would love to be uh, more kind to my kids. I would love to be more gracious and more gentle and more forgiving and more loving. But like based on the lifestyle that I had growing up, based on my decisions in college or afterwards or my career, or or, uh, I've just lived in this way so long. I've just been a jerk for so long. It's really hard for me to get out of this. And and then we come to church and and we're told like we're free from this and we're no longer slaves to this. And, and, And then Paul writes this and we go, yeah, except that it doesn't feel free. Like I don't feel free. This is, and we know this. We felt this. We feel this. I don't feel free. It's not like I, 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 got, I got baptized and I got out of there and all of a sudden my addiction's gone and I no longer have to click on those images or send these things or talk like this or do this. I'm, I, I, I'm still wrestling with this. And anybody who says anything differently, I, like, I question their authenticity, right? When people put set free from sin on their Twitter bio, they're the ones you got to worry about, right? When they're celebrating the fact that they've been, I'm set free. And you're like, I mean, but yeah, usually you find out later, those are the ones who forgot to delete their search history. And you got to explain to their wives or their girlfriends why boobs shows up when they do the Google auto fill-in. And I had to run that joke by my wife earlier last night to be like, can I even say boobs from the stage? And she's like, well, you know, junior high starts next week. You should remind them that we have a great kids ministry if they're here with you, right? And so, you know, you should maybe check that. And she, and she also goes, hey, what if you like whispered that? Could you whisper it? And I was like, I think that would be creepier if I said that. So I'm not going to do that. Anyways, those are the ones you have to worry about in that way, right? Paul is speaking in this indicative imperative. He's trying to say, listen, you have died to sin. Therefore, as a result of that, consequently, don't let sin rule over you. He's trying to introduce them. You have a new reality. When are you going to wake up to this new reality? When are you going to stop thinking in that way and realize things have changed? It's no longer like that. You don't have to do that. And I'm going to encourage you with every moment that I have to be able to be like, think in this way because this is your new reality. Let me, let me put it in um, like words or like a, a perspective that perhaps is a little bit more common for us. Um, if you've ever uh, left a job and it was a struggle because you were there for a long time and you really, really cared about the person that was in charge of you and what they said about you. And, and it's, it was just a, it was a hard deal. He was hard to work for. She was difficult. It was, it was not great. It was not a healthy work environment. It was toxic. And, it really, and, and, and you made this really tough decision. You're out of this and you've got a friend and a spouse who are watching you struggle with like this. You, you, your life was so enmeshed in this career and now it's torn and you're trying to like make sense of like who you are now, right? Because you were so tied up in work thing. 
And then they have to sit you down, and, and you're, you're an emotional wreck, and you're not sure why things keep popping up, and you, you're, you're, your fuse is short. You're taking it out on the, fam- the family or the kids or whatever. And your significant other, your spouse, your wife, your husband or whatever, sits you down and goes, listen, you don't work for that person anymore. Who cares what they say about you? You don't work for them anymore. This is the new reality. Who cares what they say about you? Or perhaps it was a marriage thing, right? You were previously married, and, and, and things were fine for a, a while. Maybe it was a long while. And then all of a sudden, there's like this break in this marital vows, and there's no, there's no recourse. There's no, he or she didn't want to work it out, and it was just like, I just want to be done with this thing. And, and, and finally, you're just like, I, I don't even know. I, I, you didn't want it to end. I don't know how it all worked. But you found yourself newly single, right? And you're in this spot now where you're not, and somebody has to, like a friend, you have to call up a friend because you're still struggling with this. And you're like, I just, ugh, he, just, he wants to do that. You know, he's calling me still and he's reaching out this way. And, and I just feel like, I'm, I feel like an obligation because we were, you know, our lives are there. He's the parents of my kids, all this kind of stuff. And, and you say, and, and your friend wisely points out, hey, you are not married to this person anymore. They don't have the same claims on you that they once did. This is the new reality. Wake up to this new reality. Don't have the same claims. You didn't, you, you know, these promises that you, that you had made at one point to each other, they, they, they were broken, and it's not, we're not getting into side whose fault and whatever, but those claims are now not in there. There's, here's this new reality. Um, live into this new reality. And, and Paul is saying, like, listen, guys, here's this new reality. He's writing to these people going, what is the death, what, you know, as we kind of facilitate, what does the death of Christ mean to us? What it means is that when he died to sin, we also, in our identification with him, died in that way too. So we have this new reality. We don't have to be slaves to that anymore. And you can do this, is what he's trying to say. And now that's not to say that it's easy. Please, and, and he would be the first one to say this, don't just assume it should be easy. I, I, I don't understand why it's not easy for you. It's not easy. In fact, there's a guy named Karl Barth who had his commentary to the epistles to the Romans. And in this, he has this quote that I thought was, was pretty brilliant. It's a little tough, but here we go. Faith is the divine revolution and upheaval by which the well-known equilibrium between yes and no, grace and sin, good and evil, is disturbed and overthrown. Here's where we find ourselves when we, we want it to be black and white. We, Paul's talking about it like you're, this, is, this is now what was once a yes to you is now should be a no. And it, we like the idea of black and white. We like the idea of a clarity on what is good and what is evil. And we just we struggle with it. And he's saying this, that faith is this divine revolution where that does get mixed up, mixed up, where we are trying to be able to understand this. The believer who is dead with Christ sees in his cross, his cross, meaning his struggle, his I know I shouldn't, but I find myself doing this. His cross, meaning uh, this is the thing that I just keep battling with, that when I, when I got baptized, when I, did, when I crossed this line of faith, when I said, all right, Jesus, I'm going to start living in the way that you teach, I can't seem to let this thing go. I, I, I'm, this is the cross that I'm bearing and I'm dealing with, he sees in this an opportunity. When you're struggling with this, that's an opportunity for comprehending the insecurity of human existence as a divine necessity by pointing beyond insecurity. That the point that you struggle with this presents the idea that you're still human, that you still need God, that you cannot do this by yourself, that this is not achievable, that this is not a pilgrimage which I hope to achieve one day. And if I do enough, I'll get there. You are on this road, you're on this journey, you're on this pilgrimage because of your identity in Christ, not to achieve the identity in Christ. The believer sees the beginning of God and the end of man. I can't do this any longer. This is not up to me anymore. And the light of his mercy in the tempest of his wrath. Paul goes on. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, 
He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, and this is his big summation passage, and all this was like, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here is his imperative to these people, to this church, to those who would read this over the shoulders, to us and future generations, reading back in Paul's text and in his wisdom about how to make sense of the death and the life of Jesus. In the same way, in the same way, count yourselves, you, us, me, us, together, corporately, count ourselves. I'm dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, real quickly, three, three uh, like tangible easy to kind of wrap our minds around, hopefully, um, takeaways from what I think Paul is trying to say in this passage so far. We're not done yet, but this is the indicative part, and then we get to the imperative part in a second. Uh, Number one, it is a terrible thing to assume mercy and to make it an excuse for sinning. Early on, this is clear. It's a terrible thing to assume mercy and to make an excuse for sinning. On a very practical story illustration, we have a friend who is there on, live on the west side. His daughter was going to school and getting hot lunches and hot breakfasts as well at school. And there would be a little card that you'd swipe as you'd go through. And she realized real quickly that as long as I swipe the card, they'd give me whatever I want. And so she slowly began adding not just like breakfast, but also then chocolate milk and also Pop-Tarts. And then when, because they just kept, there was somehow there was no limit on it and they figured that out. And I made sure with our school that this was not achievable by my kids. But she was realizing that um, her, her friends also liked chocolate milk and Pop-Tarts. And she was trying to, you know, hey, come here. I'll just, all I have to do is swipe this card and it's done, right? And then they got this bill for like $500 for a month for their school lunches. And they're like, do we need to have a talk about the price of the school lunches? And then when they went to the school district, they printed out the printout. And she had like 87 chocolate milks and 120 Pop-Tarts or something like that. It was ridiculous. She's just buying it for the whole school, right? Which should have been caught regardless it, you know, how, however you want to look at that. This, it really happened, though. And so they have to sit down and have their, their conversation. Listen, Bella, you cannot buy Pop-Tarts for your kids. I know, for, for your friends. I know, but they really like Pop-Tarts. I know, but that's their parents' issue, not our parents' issue, okay? So uh, you cannot do this anymore. Now, she stopped, but can you imagine if she's like, I hear you, but I just want to do it. I still want to do it. I know that it's wrong, but I'm going to continue. Because, listen, this will be a great story when I'm 18 about how much you cared about me, that you loved me in spite of my ability, my desire to buy Pop-Tarts for all my friends, right? I'm making this about you. Think of how great of a parent you'll be. My parents, you know how, what's really cool about my parents? They knew I was doing this, and they're like, ah, well, she's got those eyes. You know, she just gets to do what she wants. No, 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 no. that's not going to happen, right? This is him saying, listen, once we know, once the awareness is there, and we know that I know that God's grace can cover any sin that I've done. It's not an excuse to have a license to be able to continue to go on sinning because think of how great you'll look, right? This, it's kind of common, but whatever. Here we go. Number two, those who enter upon the Christian way are committed to a different kind of life. Here's what we also right, know, right? That when you, when you sign up for this, when you sit in an, uh, a room like this, an environment like this, where we said every week we're going to come, we're going to look at what it means to live in the way of Jesus, and we say we're committed to doing this together, we're going to work this out on our own, figure out what it means for 2021, and we're going to go from here and do this, it's going to require, it's going to expect from you an ethical dimension, a moral dimension that's going to change. Like, you're going to have to do things differently. And it's not just, I'm going to have to think differently about this. Paul is quick to say, no, it impacts how you live. It impacts how you view generosity, how you view forgiveness, and how you view finances, and how you think about through the lens of politics. It should shape things in your life. 
your life should look visibly externally different. And number three, there is more than a mere ethical change. There is a real identification with Christ. What has he said through the 11 verses so far? These three things. You know, th- th- there's going to be an ethical change. That there's, you can, you're going to have to change the, the way that you live and live out this. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. There's more than a mere ethical change. There's somehow something beyond this. It's, it's uh, the mystery of religion. It's the mystery of Christianity. There's, a, there's an identification that comes in a dimension beyond ourselves that we cling to even though we may not know exactly how this plays out. Therefore, so then he goes in verse 12. Here, here we go. Anytime there's a therefore, it means there's something earlier that relates to this. This all informs what I'm about to tell you. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. As those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness or justice. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Make it your practice. If I could summarize his take here. Therefore, how do we live? What's the imperative? What do we do with this? If this is true about our identity, if this is true about who we are, then may we live and practice uh, a way of life that never lets sin hold its sway over us. May we live in such a way that we, we, we practice uh, our life and we practice our ethics and we practice this in a way that does not let sin hold its sway over us. That we don't have to feel like I, I have this. Like I'm claiming a new reality. Even though I'm in those, that muddy water, the brackish water where it's like a little bit of salt water, a little bit of regular water, and I find myself in this new, I, I, I've died to my old self and I'm into this new reality and it's not quite fully realized, but that only points me more to my human frailty and more and cling more to what is said about me through Christ than what I say about myself. And I do this, I do this not to earn it because again, pilgrimage is not about an earning thing. I don't do this because I'm, uh, I'm trying to, I don't go on a pilgrimage to kind of finally achieve something. The reason that I go, or she says, uh, the reason that I pilgrim to Jerusalem is because I am a spiritual mystic. The Christian life of obedience is not a pilgrimage towards a goal as is commonly supposed. It is a witness or signpost to that end goal that has already been achieved in Christ, which would lead us to then say, listen, I do not discipline my body or my will to obey my moral obligations in order to achieve a certain level of righteousness. That is religiousness, right? And that is a game that is uh, played by many, won by very few, and uh, oftentimes destroys everybody in the process. I live a disciplined silence that I subject my will and my emotions precisely because of my spiritual orientation, because I found myself dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's what motivates me. That's what motivates me. That's, that, that's what motivates me towards obedience. That's what should change our ethical, ethical behavior. That why, why should you do anything good? Why should you try for righteousness? Why should you stop sinning? Because, you know, if God's grace is evident anyways. You should stop doing it because here's the orientation. Here's what, here's what has been said about you. May it be your practice, may it be our practice to not let sin have its sway over us, to become what we already are. And may we individually, may me personally, right, listen to this, read this, make sense of this in my own life. And with the struggles of all of the things I know I should be doing but don't find myself doing, instead of getting lost in that and saying this, I'm going to, I need to live into, I go, this is not, this is not who I am. This is not me. I know this is, 
I'm going to find myself doing this because I'm in that weird, weird, muddy spot that Bart talks about in this thing. But that's not who I am anymore. It just points me to hold firmly to a God who says something different about who I am. And may I live and wake up into this new reality. May we do this corporately. May we be a church who encourages that amongst our people. May we never prioritize a pilgrimage as a way to achieve something finally. You come here long enough, you're going to be good, right? You'll be fine. No, no, no. We gather together to centralize on the way, to remind ourselves of who God has called us to be. And then we depart from here, doing our best and leaving it up to him. May we become what we already are. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us to be able to discern this uh, reality for us, to be able to make sense of this, to be able to work through this, to be able to do, to have a moral conviction to do the right things, to make, you know, some sort of agency in our, in our life and choice. And, but may that not be so dependent on trying to earn something, but, um, as living as a response, uh, to what Paul talks about and writes about, about this church. May we know that it's true for us too. May we wake up to the, to the new reality. May we be encouraged by Paul saying, you can do this. You can, you can make this happen. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life, the courage to do something about it. In your name, amen.